0: chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Peter dwelt, as we looked last week, on negative aspects of Christian living. In these verses, he told us that at all costs and at all times, Christians must, without exception, avoid entanglements with the lifestyle and the sins of the world in order that the world be able to see There is a genuine and real and meaningful difference between the children of light and the children of darkness. Now he comes in these verses that we study today to shift to a positive approach. He is talking about the positive virtues that are to show themselves in the lives of Christians in their relationships to other people. There are three admonitions in this this passage uh, about our relationships to one another. In verse 8, we are told to love one another. In verse 9, we are told to be hospitable toward one another. And in verse 10, we are told to use whatever God gives us by way of ability and gift to minister to one another and to meet each other's needs. The message of 1 Peter as reflected throughout the book and in this passage is that the consummation of the age is at hand. The end of the world is near, unlikely and unrealistic as it may seem. There will come a day when God calls a halt to human history intervening and bringing an end to the world as we know it. And a question that Christians need to be concerned is, with is that since the end is near, how shall we then live? How shall we prepare for it? And what shall be our lifestyle? Part of that is answered in this passage. Notice with me, first of all, in verse 7. Here Peter affirms the consummation of the world. It is his affirmation that the end is at hand. Now you say, but, but Peter wrote something over 1,900 years ago and nothing has happened. But you see, in the Bible view of things, and I'm not alibying or trying to pass the buck or defend the Word. It doesn't need it. But in the Bible view of things, when Jesus Christ came as a baby at Bethlehem, eternity invaded time. God took upon Himself humanity and that was phase one of the end of all things. And whatever the time element may be, we are 1,900 years closer to that consummation than Peter was. We are closer to rapture and revelation when Christ in all of His glory will come to take control of all things and receive every bit of recognition that he is entitled to. Peter is saying that we as Christians ought not to become rooted in this world system from which we shall soon be removed. Peter uses the hope and the promise of the second coming as an incentive for Christian commitment and for godly living. Christ's first coming began the end times and he himself personally shall consummate it when he comes again. What a Christian needs to understand is this. When we are careless in our responsibility to let Christ live his life through us, when we are irresponsible about our... uh, duty as Christians which is to let him live, to minister to other people, to be sensitive to his presence, to walk as he walked as, Peter, as Paul tells us. When we are careless about these things we insult God and we excite the devil. Friday night as Mike opened the scriptures to us from 1 Corinthians 11, he told us in reference to the Lord's Supper. That when a Christian fails to live a godly life, or when a Christian refuses to forgive another person, which is the most ungodly and satanic thing that a Christian can do, when a Christian does that, it is as though he despises and sets at naught the sacrifice that Jesus Christ paid for his sins is like kicking dirt on the cross. A careless and irresponsible attitude toward the fact that every day is an important day, that Christian commitment is urgent and a matter of great importance is an insult to God and an encouragement to the devil. He affirms the consummation of the world. Then notice in verse 8, one of the most powerful and important verses of Scripture in the Bible. Here is the covering of sins. Notice the phrase, he says above all, and that is a strong phrase in the English, not nearly so strong as it is in the Greek. What he is saying by saying above all is that everything that follows is the most important thing about, in, about which a Christian can ever be concerned. Peter is saying in verse 8, you let everything in your life go. You let anything go without being done, but don't you ever let this go. And what is it that is more important than anything else in the entire world? And if Satan can turn our eyes away from this, then he has got us in the palm of his hand. That thing is that above all, we are to be fervent in our love, to one another. You know, sometimes we're prone to say, well, I can't really say say to ourselves. It's not the kind of thing you say out loud. I can't really love so-and-so, but I don't hate them. You're wrong. Friend, you have no alternative. If you don't love somebody, you do hate them. What do you mean by that? Well, 1 John 4, 7 and 8. The beloved apostle says, Let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves, loves whom? Well, it didn't say that on purpose, loves, period. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Verse 8, The one who does not love does not know God. God, for God is love. John, the Gospel of John chapter 13. The Lord Jesus speaking to his disciples in the latter stages of his ministry confirms what both Peter and John have written themselves. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another in that way. Verse 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, said, that I must conclude on the basis of Scripture. Because God with the blood of Jesus has covered my sins, then I must be willing to cover my neighbor's sins. One translator of this passage translates it, for love draws a veil over many sins... Hatred makes the worst of everything that happens. Make no mistake about it. Uh, You can't call it a bad attitude. You can't call it a critical spirit. Just call it what it is. It's hatred. It's the opposite of love. Hatred makes the worst of everything. Love buries offenses out of sight. This passage quotes Proverbs 10, 12 where uh, he says one who loves buries sins but one who causes trouble makes things known. It is a quotation of Proverbs 10, verse 12. Effective service as a Christian depends on the exercise of love for one another. Nothing that anybody can do means anything for God if their life is not saturated with love. Nothing means a thing if we do not love. No checklist of proper activities, no grocery list of service rendered to the Lord, none of it means a thing unless our lives are characterized and saturated by love for each other. Love hides the sins of others in a nameless grave. For you see, and all of us really know this, when you really love somebody, you are too busy loving them to go looking for their faults and trying to expose their problems. We need to be reminded that the work of Jesus Christ is to bring union by calling a people for God from the world and all of them are to be as he prayed in John 17. They are all to be one as he and the Father are one. Satan is the divider. Division is always of the devil. Satan is the divider. Satan began his work that way. He drove a wedge between man and God. He approached the woman and then the man and questioned the integrity and the love and the goodness of God and led man to sin and rebel and break his relationship with God. Very early in the human family, Satan sowed seeds of jealousy and envy, and one brother became the first murderer in the world as he killed his own brother. And Satan has been at the work of division ever since. And make no mistake about it, if you seek faults, it is because the love of God does not dwell within your breast. For love covers a multitude of sins. And make no mistake about it, it is very plain. He is not talking about your sins if you love. He is talking about you covering the sins of the one whom you love. He says that this love must be fervent. There's no real good way to translate this word into English. What this word means, keep your love fervent, is keep your love stretched out. And in the Greek, we find it is used to describe a runner in a race. When he nears the end of the race, he stretches out with all of his might to cross the finish line. We find that the stretching out refers in the Greek to constancy and consistency. And so at one and the same time, we see that our love, which is not a sentimental reaction, Christian love is not sentimentality. It is a command of God performed by an act of your will. We are told that love is to be constant. It is to be consistent. It is to always be straining to do everything that it can for the one who is loved. And this word is, of course, the word you are familiar with, the word agape, the love of intelligence, the love of purpose, the love which is given whether it is returned or not, the love that is given whether or not the object is worthy of love. And I would remind you that Jesus said what reward is there if you love and the word there is philia if you are fond of those who love who are philia fond of you even the heathen Jesus says do the same you know sometimes i've heard well now Jesus said even the heathen love one another but friends the love is the word is not agape it is filial. It is the love of affection, the love of kindness and goodwill. For you see, John said it in 1 John 4, the one who does not know God cannot love for God is love. And regardless of what we say, what we do in the matter of loving others and covering their sins proves where our heart is. You say, but it's not right to overlook sin. No, it's not right to overlook sin, and God doesn't do it, but God is the judge, and you are not. In Romans chapter 14, Paul says, every man stands or falls to his own master. Hatred seeks to expose the faults of others. Love hides them in a nameless grave. Oh, but if you only knew how much has been done to me. Yes, the Lord knew. And verse 8 says, Love covers a multitude of sins. Here is the covering of sins. And then notice in verses 9 through 11, Here is the comfort of the brethren. Here Peter shifts more fully in explaining our responsibilities toward one another. We are to exercise hospitality toward one another, to show kindness. He says do it without murmuring. You know, Jesus says when you do good, don't let one hand know what the other does. Jesus said of the Pharisees, they do good, but they do it in such a public and pompous way that God will never bless them for it. Do good, be hospitable to one another without bragging about it. Just try to keep it a secret. Jesus said, God who sees in secret will reward you openly. Hospitality is a tremendous privilege. And remember in Matthew 25 verse 40 where Jesus said that all of the kindnesses we do for other people, God counts them as if we had done them for Jesus. In Hebrews thirteen twelve, the writer says that by doing kindness to people, some by being hospitable have entertained angels unaware and did not know it. We are not meant to be terminals of God's love. We are meant rather to be channels of God's love like a a pipe. It is You know, a pipe is no good for carrying anything if you plug the end of it so that it fills up. Rather like a pipe, like a conduit. We are to be channels of God's love so that it just flows through us and keeps on going. For you see, if a pipe were to remain uh, filled with the same water at all times, the water would become stagnant, it would become unsterile, it would become harmful, it would stink but the water pipe through which the water continually flows is continually full of fresh, clear water. And as we allow ourselves to be channels of God's love, we are constantly full of that love as we show it to other people. This word as he uses it in verse 10 when he talks of the manifold grace of God. The word manifold, and it occurs elsewhere in Scripture, means many-colored. You know, I don't understand that Greek metaphor fully, but I think he is saying that the grace of God is manifold. It is many-sided. It is many-colored. It covers every shade in the spectrum of the rainbow of love and grace. It covers every shade. There is a shade of God's grace to meet every need, no matter what that need may be. And he says we are to be good stewards of the manifold, the many-colored grace of God. The word steward is is a a particular word in the Greek for a specific purpose used of a servant who held in trust the possessions of his master. And it was his responsibility to use the possessions of his master in the way that the master wanted them to be used. And so no one is a good steward just because they do good things. That's a gross misconception. We have an idea of doing things for God that we are going to decide, now I will do this good thing and God will appreciate it. Not so. When you are a steward, you are to do as the owner wills. And a great tragedy of many otherwise very fine Christians in all the ages of Christianity has been that they wasted their entire lives doing good instead of doing the will of God. For you see, there are so many good things to be done that we could never exhaust them. But in the economy of God, every Christian has a purpose to fulfill. And only as we, in accordance with the Master's wishes, are stewards of what He has given us, are we then successful. Here is the comfort of the brethren. This passage points out that all of our gifts, all of our abilities, all of our graces that God has given us, all of them are from the Lord. If everything I possess belongs to somebody else, what right do I have to take pride in it and be boastful? If everything I do for God is the result of the gift of God, how can I then be puffed up with pride? And it points out also that all of the gifts and graces God gives us are given for the purpose of passing them along to other people and ministering to them and meeting their needs. And in God's economy, every Christian is a vital part of what God is doing. There are no little Christians in God's sight. There are no unimportant people in God's sight. For when our lives are lived to the glory of God, everything we do, small or great, becomes a source of glory to Him in meeting the needs of other people. And then notice in verses 12 to 14, here is what I have called the coming of fire. Peter says, don't be surprised, brothers, at the fiery ordeal that comes among you. The word fiery ordeal literally means fire glow. Now what kind of a fire is it that glows? It is the fire that is white hot, that is contained in a coal. Friends, Peter is not saying that those who live for the Lord will endure the fires of life that will singe their hair or burn their flesh. He is saying that those who give their lives to Christ and live for Him will find themselves surrounded by the white, hot coals of fire that come from the enemy and the opposition of God. You know, I think when when we're first saved, most of us just had the idea that we had the world by the tail, and that's true, that we were on top of the world, and that's true, but we also got the idea sometimes that, that we would never have any problems because now God had taken the problems and erased all of them and we'd won the victory. Well, the victory has been won. The battle is over. But that's another matter. That doesn't have anything to do with every day. Because you and I are aliens and strangers, as Peter has told us earlier in this book, in a foreign land dominated by a hostile and foreign power, the enemy of God. And though our persecution will not take the form that it did in Peter's day, for Peter knew that Nero, that unstable lunatic who ruled Rome, was closing in on the church, trying to blame all of his governmental and economic problems on Christians. And Nero was passing word through the government and through the provinces that Christianity was to be eradicated. Our persecution will not be like that, but Paul says... In 2 Timothy 3, 12, that all who endeavor to live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. If a Christian can dwell in the mud of life with worldlings who do not know Jesus, and not make a difference and not engage hostility and not be rejected by the world, it's because his life bears no resemblance to Jesus. Whatever the form it may take, in the family, at school, at work, whatever form it may take, you give yourself wholeheartedly to Jesus and you will find yourselves in the white-hot coals of persecution. But there is good news... For just as the three Hebrew young men who were thrown into a furnace that was heated so hot it killed the men who threw them in, they came out of the furnace without the smell of smoke, without being burned, without being touched, without so much as their eyebrows being singed. You will find yourself as a Christian in the fire, but the fire cannot touch you because Jesus has been there first. Here is the coming of fire. It cannot burn us because He is there. What do trials do, by the way? You know, we all wonder what this is all about and why God let it happen. Well, trials serve the function of testing us. Now, the word testing used in the Greek often and used in 1 Peter is the same word it would use in talking about an examination. Now, what does an examination in school do? Well, it examines and tests your knowledge of the subject. It tests the condition of your education. And in this application, this examination, analyzes you to see what you are made of. But beyond that, like the little flowers that cannot grow unless it rains, the testing times of life harden us as when steel is beaten into shape, it is then tempered in the fire. So it will be harder and stronger and will endure longer. So testing confirms what we are and then it strengthens us and makes us what we ought to be. In verse 13, he uses the word rejoice and the word in the Greek, the verb, is of such a tense as to mean this rejoicing is a final and constant rejoicing that is not subject to being taken away. What Peter's saying, and if you get a handle on it, it'll change your life, is that when you have given yourself wholeheartedly into the hands of God, you may then begin to rejoice in such a way That you know nothing can ever happen to take away the cause of that rejoicing. He talks about we are blessed if we suffer and share in, the, if we share in the sufferings of Christ. It's blessed as in the Beatitudes when he says, blessed are those who suffer, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. It is beyond mere happiness. It is rather the blessing in the presence of God as it rests on us. Once before Christ was crucified, Peter jumped on Jesus one day because Jesus was talking about suffering. And, And Peter could not understand how Jesus or anybody who belonged to him ought to suffer. But now Peter thinks it very strange that anyone would think anything else than that if we belong to Jesus, we will suffer. There's a beautiful, beautiful promise here He talks about when we suffer for Christ, we are visited by the Spirit of the glory and of God. Now that's a strange phrase and it doesn't occur elsewhere. But the word glory is the word that is used in the Old Testament where it talks about the glory of God that rested over Mount Sinai when Moses was on the mountain talking to God. It is a visible, glowing fire of glory, the presence of God. And notice that in this passage there are two fire glows. There is the fire of uh, temptation, the fire of trial, but then there is the fire glow of God's presence. And what Peter is saying by don't you worry about the fires of life because the fire of God rests on you is that the glory, the shekinah, the presence, the visible visitation of God is so glorious that the fires of testing lose their power. When Solomon dedicated the temple, we read that the shekinah, the glory of God, filled The temple and all of the people saw it. And what Peter says is that when you are tempted and tested and tried and you suffer for Christ, there will be about your life a visible presence of God that the world can see. Here is the coming of fire the fire of testing, but the fire of God's presence also. And then in verses 15 and 16, here is what I have called the consistency of conduct. In wrapping up this topic, Peter simply says, Now don't you dare suffer as a sinner, for that is an insult to God. Don't suffer that way. Don't let any Christian suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer. The word evildoer is a word that means bad actors. You have a role to fulfill as a Christian. Don't suffer as a bad actor or as a troublesome meddler. And this word, troublesome meddler, is a compound word. It only occurs one other place in all of Greek literature, and that is not until 500 years after Peter used it here. Peter made this word up. He coined the phrase. The word is a compound word, two words just put back to back, That means one who looks into the affairs of another person. And you know, it's not stretching the Scripture to say that said in the same breath as murdery and thievery, God considers one who looks into the affairs of another with great seriousness... You know how happy families and businesses and schools and and churches would be if people just recognized that their sole responsibility to God was to make sure that they were right with God and let God worry about everybody else. You know, it doesn't even matter if we're right about the things that we say. We just don't have a right to say them because we then become one who looks Into the affairs of another, and that is forbidden. Here is consistency of conduct. Peter says, Don't suffer like someone like that. You know, I have never in my life known of anybody that had a problem controlling their mouth that did not loud and longly complain about how poorly they were treated. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And Peter says, don't suffer that way because that is an insult to God and an encouragement to the devil. Suffer as a Christian and then glorify God by that name. The word Christian means little Jesus person. Little Jesus, one who is like Christ. Peter says, suffer in that way. Rather glorify God by bearing the name of Christ. And you know the promise of God is that all we have to endure is a proven blessing. Persecution, separation, the privilege of comforting others, the privilege of loving others, all of it is a proven blessing. Paul expressed it in Romans 8, 28 when he said, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. Shall we dwell in beds of ease and live a life of leisure when Christ suffered death on the cross and dwelt among seas of anguish? Shall we not follow our captain? And shall we not remember the example of Jesus? When men wanted to make Jesus a king, he fled away from the honor. But when it was time for the cross, he presented himself to be crucified. May we pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that you tell us it is not a burden, it is a privilege to love one another, to be hospitable to one another, to minister to one another's needs. And I thank you, Lord, for the awareness, and perhaps there are some of us here today who have not had the awareness that the fire of your presence as we give ourselves wholeheartedly in your hands makes the fires of life pale in insignificance and makes them lose their power. Father, I thank you that no furnace Satan can stoke, can burn a hair on the head of God's people when they live for Jesus and give themselves to Him. May there always be about us the fire glow of your presence. Do with us as you please. This day, give souls as those who need to be saved confess their sins and ask Christ to come into their hearts. Father, bring members to the church. Those whom you have appointed a task to minister among this people, bring them in that they may minister to us, that we may minister to them. Draw from every one of us the kind of commitment that will change the way that we live every day. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We stand to sing, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. Lamb of God, I come. I come. And whatever God would have you do, by making public what he is doing and has done in your life, you'll do that today. Step to the aisle, meet me at the front so that I may pray with you. Right now and quickly, who will be first?